Hello and welcome to episode nine of Of Poetry Podcast. Joining me today is poet and teacher Esteban Rodriguez, the author of five poetry collections, most recently The Valley from Sundress Publications, and the essay collection Before the Earth Devours Us, Split Lip Press. He's the interviews editor for the Ecothea Review, senior book reviews editor for Tupelo Quarterly, and associate poetry editor for Agni. Esteban currently lives in Central Texas. Hi, Esteban, and welcome. Hi. <laughs> so glad to be here. <laughs> so good to see you. You as well. Would you like to start us off with a poem? Most definitely. I'm going to start off with the poem uh, titled Recuerdo Heal. Before my mother conceded my body to a clinic, to cotton swabs, stethoscopes, tongue depressors, injections, suppositories, generic prescriptions, and lollipops I'd leave with without the strength to lift them. I'd be subjected to rounds of Robitussin, expired NyQuil, cocktail after cocktail of nondescript medicines from Mexico, of those bronze and maroon liquids she insisted were both natural and sweet, and that, regardless of their consistency, would keep my fever from rising, forming into bronchitis, pneumonia, ancient strains of influenza, tuberculosis, or whatever illness made my breathing sound like an imitation of my grandfather's, and led her to knead clumps of vapor rub across my chest all evening. In the morning, when the coughing returned and the temperature my mother gauged with her hands still felt warm, I tossed back another dose of something I couldn't pronounce, along with bottles of Sprite, 7-Up, salt water I'd guzzled down, knowing the remedies would turn into dollar store candles of saints on the stove, into the cleaning of the house with incense or into me lying half naked on the couch, watching my grandmother crack the cold egg she'd pass over my body into a bowl and waiting as she'd pray in languages I had never heard for the yolk to curdle, for the symptoms to no longer claim me as their source. Thank you. And you have a sequence, well, Maybe not sequence, but you have a repetition of poems titled or half titled Recuerdo throughout. And I remember I looked it up. Is it memory or remembrance? Or yeah, definitely. Uh, Recuerdo in Spanish uh, roughly translates to uh, memory in English. I love that your mother and your grandmother are here and that your sister and your mother are a big presence in this book, both in terms of um, appearing in your poems and in terms of really being collaborative with you in this text that they, you know, you acknowledge them in the front as um, taking the photographs included in the collection, which are all from your, from your hometown, right? Yeah, definitely. So um, for some background, I grew up in the, the Rio Grande Valley, which is located in deep South Texas. And I, I explained it uh, to someone recently. It's kind of almost like a smorgasbord of like cities with rural areas that are all combined in these few counties. 
Um, and my mother and my sister were, li were living in the Valley while I was living in Austin. And I had this idea for the collection um, pretty early on. And I wanted to, to incorporate photographs, uh, but the only way I could do that, at least like, I'm not a really good photographer, but my sister is, um, was um, asking them for help. And so I gave them, I remembering these places that we would go to all the time in the Valley, um, I gave them specific kind of assignments one summer. And both my mother and my sister just traveled around the Valley for a few weeks and took all these pictures. And they sent me hundreds of photographs and whittled it down to the few that made it into the collection. And it was, it was quite amazing. Wow. That's incredible. And um, I don't, I know not everyone's family's the same way, but um, that being included in your work must've been pretty awesome. I think for that, you yeah. know, for them, like my parents like, like being involved or if they can somehow <laughs> show through. Um, so I think that's really, it is such a material way to be present um, in a, in a family member's book. Yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty awesome. My sister, um, she is, she, she lives with me now currently in central Texas and she's applying to medical school that will, will be applying pretty soon. And, uh, she goes, I'm definitely going to put on my resume that I'm a published photographer. And I was like, you should, you should definitely do that. Yes. Yes. Um, no, I, I think absolutely. And also, I love that you just said your sister lives with you. My sister has lived with me before. And I, I think that closeness um, in families is just pretty awesome to have, too. That it's not just like, oh, I asked them for photographs. Um, but physically being in the same area with someone is really special, especially in a writer's life, I feel like, but in everyone's. Um, something I was thinking about was place, um, especially, I mean, I think about how big you know, I really like to say South rather than South, you know, you can grow up your whole life in one South and not visit another. I didn't, I don't think I went to Texas. Um, you know, I visited my grandparents in Louisiana, but I didn't visit Texas till I was an adult. And, you know, when you mentioned that you live in South Texas, but it's like five hours South of, um, I'm going to forget the city's name. I'm just going to be here on a podcast forgetting a major text. <laughs> <No. laughs> Austin, Austin. <laughs> well, I, I lived in Austin. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm like so blushing. I'll cut this part. Let's cut this part. Um, no, no I just it read it this morning and I read so much. Um, okay. Um, yeah, just you know, the, if you had said to me, especially in my younger days, the Valley, I would have thought of San Fernando Valley in California. Mm. I would not have thought about Valley in Texas. Um, and so I was interested in yourself and living in Texas and Texas poetics. Um, and also today, September 30th is the publication day of your essay collection, Before the Earth Devours Us from Split Lip Press. So congratulations to that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Texas is 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 um, a really big state. And usually when I moved up to Austin to do my undergrad um, at UT Austin, I'd always tell people that I'm from the Valley um, and they would, they or from like South Texas, actually. So I'm from South Texas and they're like, oh, that's San Antonio, right? And I was like, no, think San Antonio. And 
think five hours um, south. Um, so growing up along the the border, the U.S.-Mexican border, I lived five miles away from Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. And it is it is very very different from the rest of Texas in terms of like demographics, in terms of um, economics, uh, culture as well. And it was it was very reflecting on it as an adult. I'm I'm very grateful for my time growing up in the valley. I got to experience um, both like American and Mexican uh, cultures as well. Got to cross over into Mexico uh, considerably, but there was something that was a little bit lost, at least with me. I'm second generation Mexican American. Um, and by the time um, I was born and, and even just my cousins, I think we had lost a, a little bit of something in terms of whether it was language or, or cultural heritage um, in the same way that like my kids might lose some of that, that heritage as well. But um, growing up was, was a relatively normal childhood um, and I, I couldn't be prouder and more grateful than having supportive parents and having uh, people around me that were just super supportive, very family oriented. And so a lot of um, support coming from a variety of different directions. Hmm. It's interesting to me, the work that has to be done every single generation in terms of kind of learning family lore in terms of learning historical lore and place lore and where you're from and um, that, you know, you're not just born with it um, and you're not just simply acculturated to it. It's not just something that, oh, if you grew up in this family, you have it. Um, that, you know, I'm always thinking about that quote from Simone de Beauvoir that, you know, one is not born, but becomes a woman. And I think that works with so many different um, kind of identities or in our, you know, I don't think I was born Southern, you know, you become Southern or what, what are those things that, um, in some ways it's like, you know, in academia, we like to talk about a recovery project, like, oh, is this a recovery project? <laughs> and you just think like <laughs> a human life is a recovery project. Um, do you feel like that with your work that you do recovery work and whether that's your poetry or your essays? Yeah, and I think it could be, I'm thinking more in terms of like recovering what the memories were, at least like as an adult and, and trying to tease out the nuances of those memories. Um, growing up, I mean, if I was eight or nine, I didn't necessarily think of like, oh, I'm growing up in the Rio Grande Valley and this is this place geopolitically in the United States that, that means something. I was just kind of growing up trying to have a regular childhood. Uh, but now as an adult, um, looking back at that and trying to make sense of it, uh, it becomes super important to the work. Uh, it becomes super important to my identity as a writer, my identity as a person to try to tease out those nuances, those details and make meaning of it that I can, I can feel comfortable with. Hmm. And in the, the South, I mean, Texas, Texas is vastly different, I think, than mm -hmm. what we... Um, fortunately consider a little bit more like traditional South, but the Valley is even much more different than uh, the rest of Texas. Um, just geographically, there is a good stretch of land that's sparsely um, populated, um, but there is there, a small conglomeration of towns leading up from like Edinburgh, which is uh, in McAllen all the way up to San Antonio. But yeah, it's definitely separate from the, from the rest of Texas, I would say. And um pros and cons, I guess, with that. Understandably. Yeah. Um, I was actually wondering, would you like to read 
one of your your opening your two opening poems from the valley either of those yeah definitely um let's see which one let's see Westlaco so Westlaco is my hometown um small city um a relatively small city it's considered a mid-valley so it's between the two larger cities in the valley which are Brownsville which is the largest city the second largest city is McAllen. Um, it lies in between both of them. And Westlaco is actually a really uh, interesting name. Um, it, if I'm not mistaken, the history behind it, there used to be a company, a farming company called Westland Company. And I think they just, uh, when Westlaco became uh, an actual town, they took the first letters of those, that company name and made it into Westlaco. As opposed to like a city like McAllen, which I think it's uh, the last name, the surname of a, of a natural family that settled there. This is Westlaco. Here too, the house, the boy, the father bent beneath the hood of a truck, the mother inside dusting, sweeping, adjusting angel and rooster figurines. Here too, the television novellas, the windows with their blue dusk, the sky smuggling stars from somewhere up north or from somewhere down south or from any direction that renders them less than native, local, less than synonymous with the street corner where one pack of dogs barks at another pack of do dogs ready to rip flesh apart. And here too, the night, stale, swollen, a backdrop for barbecues, music, chit-chat, and laughter for rants that become arguments, for arguments that become threats, for threats that revert back to chit chat and laughter and that soften the moment you come in. And whether you enter the scene as boy, father, mother, a breeze brushes a language on your skin, one you translate the best you can, claim as a soul that's left one body for the next. Thank you. Um, I, I love this book and particularly I think the first few poems just really do set up place so strongly for your reader and um, I love reading lines that make me sit up um, and the deep fried darkness thickens that's in the next poem Mercedes and um, oh my gosh I just I think that that's so evocative and um, such a gorgeously deeply southern image for me um and, <laughs> you know I think it's this incredible deep fried darkness I kept in fact you know like I read it and unfortunately because I read and move across text a lot I was like where did I read that <laughs> so I was trying to find it and I was like oh god good good yet it's in this book I see um so yeah it's I think you do some just incredible work with place um and that's really exciting um i was just reading jane springer's poetry collection murder ballad um and i was thinking about you know it's very louisiana and it's like textured particular and bright and how affirming that is for um a southern writer but also just a fellow writer i think being able to see something that really glitters for someone else um and to be able to share that is just pretty incredible to do um, yeah most definitely and I always think like um somebody had said it I think when I was in school but like the more specific you are the more universal 
that becomes. And I've always thought about that. And I was just, I knew that if I, if I was going to write about a, a place that I grew up in or the place that I grew up in, if I was more specific, I think it would, it would be more relatable to the reader and the reader could connect on a deeper level as opposed to me being a little bit more vague or, or general. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's such a, it's such a paradox that the more particular you are. <laughs> um, I've been thinking a little bit about like William Bronx poetry and mm-hmm. you know how abstract it is. And it's sometimes like you can't get a handle on it. Um, it's interesting to think about. Not that, I mean, I, I think his poetry is beautiful. I was just reading about it in, in one of Kay Ryan's books. And um, it's interesting to think about good to talk about with students (laughs) be particular be particular yeah yeah I think like regardless of how difficult it might be I am always um perhaps my favorite poet and a poet that I just always recommend to everybody is the poet Jay Wright um there's a book coming out with flood editions this December um but his particular, after his first collection, The Homecoming Singer, um, his work got a little bit more, I guess what people would term difficult. Um, but it, was, it brings in history, it brings in uh, different African cultures, um, brings in references that, although a little bit obscure and maybe a little bit difficult to, to dissect that in the moment while reading, um, stay with you long after you've left the page. And I absolutely love that. And I will always continue going back to his work. Um, because of how specific he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's an incredible, um, and there's something, there's something that's really depthful about looking really hard at surfaces, um, <laughs> not to play too hard into that like critical binary that we love. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your new essay collection? Because I have not read like anything about it yet. So I'm really excited. (laughs) Yeah, so the essay collection is a series of eight essays. It is about growing up in the Valley, but not necessarily about the Valley itself. It's more sort of just the experiences I had in childhood, during my childhood. So the first one is about my, my first essay, for example, is about my stepfather and the turbulent relationship he had with my mother and so how it all came to head with my twin uncles getting into essentially a fight with him, a physical altercation with him. And then you have other essays um, such as Elegy, where it was just me and my cousin, Ivana, that um, ended up finding a dead crow and right side of an office building. And we come up with this bright idea to throw that dead crow inside the office building, thinking it would be funny. Um, and just sort of what it meant to... to to come face to face with death and, and the manner in which I reacted to it and what I thought was humorous at the time, which it's absolutely not humorous. And then thinking back upon, upon it. And this is like one particular essay called the Raptors about um, my fascination as a child with the lost Raptors. I remember seeing Jurassic Park for the first time and I, I was absolutely in love with those Raptors, even though now I know as a, an adult, they weren't uh, necessarily those menacing creatures that we saw on screen. But yeah, it's a, it's a collection of personal essays um, to discuss my childhood and, and to try to navigate that labyrinth of memory that um, I'm so interested in. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting to me um, 
And I feel a lot of connection with your work in terms of you working with past and family and kind of memoir and nonfiction. Um, and it's so interesting to me that I don't, I'm 36 and I feel like something like changed in my thirties when I was finally able to look backward more clearly than I had, like before it was just like, move forward, move forward, move forward. And you're so busy, like your twenties are so busy. And um, I don't know, there's something really interesting that happens when you're finally able to turn back. Um, I, I never thought of it in those terms, but I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Where you're uh, in your twenties, it's not necessarily that you're looking forward, but do you kind of want time to slow down a little bit? But now in your thirties, you're I'm in my 30s as well. And I just, I want to look backwards and I don't want to look forward all too much. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel that. Um, you, the title of your collection, Before the Earth Devours Us, where is that from? Yeah, that comes from, it is a total riff off of a book, which in Spanish is, Y no soy lo trago la tierra, and the earth did not devour him by Mexican-American writer Tomás Rivera, um, which is, it's a novel, but it's kind of a, almost like a collection of vignettes. And so I totally riffed off of that. Uh, perhaps some people might say I stole the title, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, that's one of the, the, the books that um, growing up in the Valley uh, had amazing teachers um, and our curriculum for like the English classes was, was definitely a little bit more traditional in the sense that we would read Beowulf and, and just the, the standard Shakespeare plays and whatnot. Um, but I remember being introduced early on to Tomas Rivera's work when I was a freshman, if I'm not mistaken, and I was always in love with it and reread, read and reread his book and continued to reread it. And I, I knew that if I was gonna make a prose collection um, that I had to include in some way his title there as homage, but as, also as a, as a reference that um, hopefully others would recognize. That is so beautiful. It's so evocative. Um, you know, it's got almost like a biblical ring to it. Um, it's got a climate ring to it for me. Um, and so that's why um, I, I was like, I have no idea what this collection is about, but I love essays. Um, and so I was really excited um, to hear about this. So do you consider yourself a poet who writes essays or just a writer or an essayist? or a nonfiction writer? I think five years ago, it was definitely a poet. Now it's a poet who writes essays. I think maybe five years from now, it might be just um, an essayist who writes poems or just writer in general. I think just, um, I'm more comfortable saying at least like in imaginative literature, right? Mm -hmm. Being a poet who writes essays. But I think overall, I'm just a writer. I also write, mm -hmm. um, what do you call it? Reviews. Um, I write a lot of reviews um, for poetry books and just books in general. And I'm also an interviews editor. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> excuse me. So I think writer would encompass uh, a lot of that. Yeah. No, I think that's really good to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's something I try to be conscious of because sometimes writers get really put into boxes um, mm -hmm. or like you think of them only as one kind, you know, like, oh, they're a fiction writer. They don't write, you know, these weird little divisions, which I really don't think need to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really exciting to me how many things poets are doing now in terms of novels and essays and short stories, and, um, you know, memoirs. And there's some, I think it's gotten really exciting in literature. Oh, undoubtedly.
Um, one of the things um, I think many of us look at you with admiration um, and Jason Myers, uh, my, my editor friend and your editor friend at EcoTheo, uh, we've joked that you really should just, you know, be an, you know a, a full professor already because your poetry collections you definitely make career <laughs> you've, you've had a number you have five collections out if, if I'm correct um, and they've been fairly close together but as a fellow writer I understand that the work behind the publications takes years and we just see you know the, the part that's rising above the ocean of your labor um, and I was wondering if you could talk to listeners about your experience, because so many, there are just, when I think about it, there are so many amazing poets who do not have their first books out yet that I'm just waiting for. And undoubtedly, um, yeah, we're all kind of just hanging around talking to each other and trying to, um, kind of dream bigger. But, um, one of the things I'd love to hear is, you know, what your experience is with publishing and, you know, some of your books came out in the same year as each other and like, what have been the pros and cons and what have you learned? Yeah, I think, um, with my first book, Dusk and Dust, uh, which was published by Hub City Press, I had to finish that book, um, in 2017 and it came out in 2019. So the process was a little bit longer at that time. I mean, I was already, and shelved the book was entering into competitions and uh, to open reading periods. And I'd already began work on a new book and then also on a new book as well. So a lot of like what does get published um, as book form has started years earlier, uh, even if it's just the idea for the book as well. And it happened relatively quickly. I was actually really surprised that uh, another book was like published that same year. And then last year as well, there was two books um, they were published but again the the work has has happened years prior so i think like displacement for example I started writing displacement in 2018 and then found some other poems that didn't quite fit with another project that i had in mind and was able to stitch them together in order to to make that collection so i think that that's that's been the um, uh, the process, at least for me, a lot of the times, especially for a collection like, or collections like Displacement and In Bloom, there are poems I wrote a long time ago that just didn't fit in, also with The Valley as well, that's also the process for that. There's poems that I wrote a long time ago that just didn't fit in and that I left in my note section of like my iPhone or left in my inbox and my Gmail, because I usually kind of just send the poems to myself and put them in a folder. And I was able to rediscover them, exhume them, if you will, and find a way for them to fit into what I was currently working on. Uh, so for example, in the Valley, all the poems that are titled Recuerdo were originally for the first poetry collection, Dusk and Dusk. Uh, so they were written years before, um, wow. like 2016, 2017, that I just couldn't find a way to fit them in. And the collection seemed a little bit longer and there were certain themes that they touched upon that poems already in that collection were focusing on. So I didn't want to have two poems that were the exact same. And I was able to tweak them a little bit, uh, the Recuerdo poems, able to tweak them, edit them and make them fit into this collection. And I'm so glad for that. So it has been quite rewarding, but I think uh, at the same time, a little bit exhausting uh, to, to publish two books at the same time. I think the, the, 
the feeling, the emotional aspect is definitely overwhelming. And I absolutely love it. I can put work out and people can read it. But I think also there's just like a practical part to it where in terms of like promotion and putting myself out there and putting the book out there can be a little bit taxing uh, on me, but still nevertheless, really grateful that, that there's readers out there who want to read my work. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's really um, good to hear you say that it's, you know, something that requires balance. And also, frankly, I I love hearing that you work across years on multiple projects Mm -hmm. and that you're able to do some kind of, I mean, it seems to me like a a very clarifying move when you realize that multiple, I don't know when in the process this happened, but like you wanted to title multiple Mm -hmm poems with you know because you say recuerdo and then you have a colon and then the the second half of the poem's title um and like those moments when you're like oh wait these work together and you're able to like link them by way of title those are really exciting rewarding moments I think oh yeah and that undoubtedly in in my third collection in bloom I had started writing poems that were also supposed to be attached to that first collection um, that didn't make it in. And I put them in a, a little folder or a little folder in my Gmail again, cause I, I send all the poems to myself and just want to make sure that there's one place where they always live. I don't want to uh, have those horror stories of people's computer being wiped out and then they mm. can't recover their stuff. Um, so I sent it to myself and I think it was just like titled poems 2015 or something like that. And one night I was, I was writing a poem and I just, for some reason, started looking through my Gmail old poems to see like, oh man, I look back at the old work I was doing and I found about 20 poems that I was like, oh my gosh, I can actually do something with this and make it into a chat book or make it to an actual Mm -hmm. book. And so then started building off of those poems to, to make it into the collection. Yeah, that's so exciting because 20 poems is, you know, a third of a full length, basically. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm not sure I've heard a fellow poet or teacher say this, but I have heard um, academics say this, which is like, no work is ever wasted. Like all of the, if you've written a paper and you don't use it, you use it for something else. If you don't put that chapter in your dissertation, turn it into something else. And it's really exciting to hear that you doing that across poetry collections. Cause I think a lot of us cut things and some things don't need to be in the final book. Like, and there are good reasons to exclude them, but other times, like if you have multiple poems that seem to be a group, like, um, and I think of like Ann Carson, right. Who had the multiple tables, and you know with the different projects on them like if we can do that mentally especially as poets we have so many side hustles going on we have so many different projects if you can think about not having one book that you were revising over and over and transforming and changing and resubmitting to prizes and constantly trying to find that final final form instead of that like what if you have multiple projects going on like can you open up I mean, I, I don't know. I probably have four or five right now. You know, like that's a good, I think that's just like the exciting and rewarding. And it's like totally pre-publication. You can't do that fun stuff after publication, like <laughs> exactly. before. Um, so it's really good to hear 
from like a fellow practitioner who seems to be doing kind of the same, having the same attitude towards their work. It's very exciting. Yeah, I think there's like, I, I mean, I think within the poetry community, there might be some debate, I don't know how, how, how much is still going on, but in terms of like the, 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 prod, the poetry collection that's like a poetry project as opposed to like the, the collection, the book that's just a collection of poems. Mm-hmm. And I definitely don't uh, admire people who, who can just write a poem and then see how they can thread the themes or style between the poems that they've written into a collection and make them into a collection. I can't do that. I, I need to have a project uh, and I need to write toward that project. It at least keeps me a little bit grounded and keeps my focus towards writing poems that have an eventual uh, destination, if you, if you will. But sometimes they don't, they just don't make the cut. And so if I'm going to write a, a different project, I'll see in what ways I can, I can incorporate them um, maybe with a few tweaks here and there. Um, so that way that poem isn't completely abandoned. Do you find that title and, and well, first of all, do you keep your title throughout or does it change? And second of all, is the title really important to your process and thinking about the project of what one work is doing? Yeah, I would say it is um, in terms of like the, the, the overall title, I would say, um, undoubtedly, I think, for example, that the third collection um, in Bloom, it was supposed to be titled Carousel. And I had this image of like, hmm. I mean, Carousel evokes a lot of images in terms of like being at a fair or just um, maybe even like a boardwalk and whatnot. And it might evoke images of like childhood and, and just a good time or, or happy time. And then eventually I it helped me work towards like those group of 20 poems that eventually became in bloom. And there was one particular, there's one particular poem in bloom, which the, the title eventually became because reference to Nirvana's uh, song, uh, but it helps me work towards that. There's a collection of poetry right now I'm working on titled um, the cities where the moon says, I love you riff off of Frank Sanford's the battlefield where the moon says, I love you. I think Lee Young Lee's uh, the cities in which I love you. Uh, one of his earlier collections. And this is all about the cities that my wife has, and I have traveled to, whether mm-hmm. it's like vacation or, or just traveling somewhere for work and whatnot. And even just like where we've lived um, and the spaces in between those cities and what they've meant. Whoa, that is some close riffing. Good thing Stanford's dead. <laughs> Do it. That is like, yeah. I, again, I think I just, I keep like stealing these titles from other people. No, I think that's wonderful. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, that's how we, you know, we move off other people. I think that that's such an important part, um, you know, uh, Laura Wetherington and I we were talking about after poems and it's just at some point you have to say like we are entangled and uh, that's the vice and the virtue of, of being around other people but also it would be so lonely and boring to write in a vacuum um, yeah it would <laughs> and I think that's the beautiful thing about poetry right um, or just any genre you'll, uh, the themes will be the same, but the, the style, the way a poet approaches their subject is mm-hmm. different. And that's what's super exciting. I mean, I could read a hundred different poems about um, mm-hmm. a father and 
they all be really distinct and and in each one of them i'm really excited about what i can learn from it yeah yeah so if i have moments like this i just cut them later (laughs) sometimes my brain has to catch up and i'm like i try not to do too much cutting because it's a pain but um just because i'm a baby podcaster um (laughs) I think I, I, I want to start a podcast called Books and Brew. Books and Brew, yeah. Or Brew and Books. I, I have no time to to do this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> one day I eventually. That'd be really this. fun. They're really, I mean, it's the best part about this podcast is it's literally just an excuse for me to sit and talk with people I want to talk with and like, all, I mean, this year and last year, so many amazing books coming out, so many amazing first books, so many books, you know, I'd love to give more attention to, but I just, I can't write a review of everything. And so just being like, here's one more way to sit and talk with people, to get listeners to hear some of your poems, to um, hear your voice, to hear a conversation. And um, like, I love the idea of sitting at a a kitchen table like that we just you know we we can sit and laugh about stuff and like poetry and writing they're funny things and people read animals um so (laughs) (laughs) um so I know that from reading interviews that you are into bouldering um and I had to look up the difference between bouldering and rock climbing because I was like wait this sounds like rock climbing what's the difference (laughs) and I know you mentioned in the interview that there were harnesses but some people are like oh there are no harnesses in bouldering you just have like I don't I don't think they said free fall but there's something anyways I'm not I'm not into either so I'm a stranger um but are you still bouldering um so unfortunately, I'm not still bouldering. Uh, I moved, so I moved earlier this year from Austin to a city about uh, 20, 30 miles away from Austin um, called Kyle. It's Kyle, Texas. Um, my wife and I were looking for a house and it just was a little bit more affordable. If you know anything about the Austin housing market, it is absolutely, um, yeah, it's it's pretty hectic. Um, but we moved and I used to go to a place, I used to live near a place called Austin Boulder Project. If you're ever in Austin, want a day pass, they do day passes, I highly recommend it. Uh, but yes, bouldering is without, if I'm not mistaken, without the harness. And it's really just you kind of climbing walls, using specific routes. There's different levels of difficulty that you can uh, go. So it's welcome to beginners and experts alike. And I found it really cathartic to just have an obstacle right in front of me and me try to for lack of a better term kind of conquer that obstacle and really just try to to be with myself where I'm not necessarily thinking about writing or not necessarily thinking about the million other things that I'm doing in life where I can just try to to complete this route and feel like I accomplished something even if I didn't complete the route if I went halfway up and I couldn't figure out a way I was still really really amazing to to do yeah no it is um and um I loved reading about that in the interview because um I do think the best thing 
you can do for your poetry is something else. And I wish I'd known that more as an MFA student who like, when you're like, you're so focused, you're like, the point of this program is for me to write poetry. Now <laughs> write some poetry. And you're like, I've read all these poems now sit down. And like your time, I mean, I was working. So like your time is limited and you're trying to just focus, but it's like, it, it, I feel like poetry just kind of gives under that pressure. Like it's just, mm-hmm. maybe it works for some people. It doesn't work for me. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't work for me either, although I, I do always recommend, like, I think one of the best things you can do when you're not writing is reading um, mm-hmm. whatever, like whether it's poetry, a novel, a memoir. Um, but I used to, I mean, I used to spend hours writing. Like I would sit in front, sit down, have a notebook in front of me and just write and write and write. And as I've gotten older and as I've, I've, I'm a bit more experienced writer, I found that like, it's definitely the quality of the writing as opposed to the quantity. And now the, the quantity in terms of like my time actually writing is not there, but I think the quality is a little bit better. And if I can, if I can write for 15 minutes and use what I've learned in life or what I'm experiencing in life and if it finds a way inside the poems and great, um, and I'm all the better for it, but it's definitely the quality for it. Like, am I going to make these 15 minutes that I have to write like the best 15 minutes ever, even if it's just adding one line to a poem? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I will try to do that as much as possible. Yeah. And I think when you, you know, you bring up adding a line to a poem, revision is, is such a gift when you can't write, like you can go read other things you've written and think about them and there's always something (laughs) there's always something it will change um are you Esteban you're teaching right now correct where are you teaching yeah I'm I'm not 100% teaching I'm kind of teaching uh but I I used to be a teacher I used to teach AP Lang and AP Lit um but I I do still teach it's a different course but I'm a college counselor. My title is a college counselor. And essentially, I, I help students through the college application mm-hmm. process. So anything from writing their personal statement essays uh, to getting their resume in the best form to also applying for scholarships and then understanding the complexities of financial aid. I do that with students with the caseload that I have. But I, I teach at a, a school called Idea Montopolis College Prep. It's a pretty small school. We, um, it's a network of schools, a public charter school, but our school is in East Austin, a uh, very close-knit community. We only have about 85 seniors, if I'm not mistaken. And the great thing about this particular year is that those, these seniors, I taught, I actually taught English writing and, or English literature and writing when they were in seventh grade. So it's been six years or five years since they were in seventh grade. And it's absolutely amazing to have seen them mature and to see where they are now and to know that they're going to go into, uh, they're going to matriculate to some really amazing colleges. We have students applying to Carnegie Mellon, Cornell, UT Austin, and it's pretty rewarding to see them come into their own and take the next step in life. Mm, that's incredible. And I appreciate you bringing up what you're doing because we're all doing, especially since the pandemic, such different things than we might've expected or um, figuring out what you do. I mean, a lot of poets have, um, not all, but a lot of us have English backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, So (laughs) 
So you know, how do you how do you kind of stay in the game writing and working with students? Because I think there's a lot of fun fun in that, and um, it's just a really incredible application of all your skills. And you have some very lucky students. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I definitely say that I'm I'm the lucky one in terms of like what I can learn from them and and knowing. Mm-hmm their their drive to some of them are majority of them if i'm not mistaken about 90 percent of our students are going to be first generation college students which is absolutely amazing knowing that um they've chosen this path and that they they're energized and ready for that next step Hmm. those sound like some good students (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're absolutely amazing i've known them since seventh grade they weren't the best in seventh grade i will say that i mean middle school is uh I, I tell them that all the time. I was like, oh man, you guys were that great. Uh, but oh it God. was seventh grade. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I was a seventh grader, I was not the best student. Yeah, also, not like the best, like, I mean, I was a, a decent human being, but like, I don't know, you kids are kids, right? Um, and so, but it's it's been an absolute pleasure to see their growth over the years. That's wonderful. Would you like to close us up with a poem? Or yeah, if you wanted to read from your essay collection, either way. Yeah, let's read from the essay collection. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read. Um, I'll read the opening um, few paragraphs from After the Pyre. Some context for After the Pyre. Um, my, my stepfather, um, his name was Santos. He is the father of my sister. I always say my sister, Iris. Um, she's my half-sister, but I, I don't distinguish between those particular categories. She is uh, definitely my sister, just the technical thing right there. Um, but um, he, was, he, was, he was often quite abusive to my mother, just verbally and physically, and they did not have the best relationship. He ended up uh, passing through a, if I'm not mistaken, um, a drug deal gone wrong, and this is sort of my memory or my recollection of, of my my anger or my my experience towards him. And so I read the, these first few opening lines, a paragraph. Sorry, after the pyre, I wanted to kill my stepfather. I'd dream it, daydream it, imagine myself standing over him in the middle of a field watching blood spurt from the puncture wound on his chest, his white wife beater quickly turning red. I'd picture his cracked, inebriated lips struggling for breath, stammering a string of syllables that sounded like why, por qué, while I, clenching a gun or knife tighter in my hand, searched for an answer that would not only add a sense of closure, but would remind him that his life had always been beyond the boundaries of redemption. Santos lived with his mother across the street from us. From what I knew, his mother was dying, had been for years, old age, diabetes, new bouts of what I can now guess was bronchitis, pneumonia, or some chronic strain of the flu that required weekly visits from a home health nurse, further fueling her unwillingness to continue being spoon-fed, sponge-bathed, diaper-changed, spoken to like a child, and taken to La Pulga once, perhaps twice if she was feeling up to it, a month, where she was wheelchaired through the labyrinth of veteran vendors who studied the nightgown skeleton she had become. Though it's easy to picture her face, the strands of static colored hair cascading over her forehead, temples, 
ears, the wrinkles and paper mache-like roughness of her cheeks. I'd only ever see her on those afternoons when I'd sit on the porch steps and watch Santos carry her down the makeshift ramp my mother told me he had built, tilting her carefully through the sun-warped planks, pivoting when they reached the bottom, and then pushing her along the walkway of sunken, octagon-shaped bricks crookedly leading to the chain-link gate. Don't stare, I can still hear my mother saying. You should know better, it's rude to stare. But whenever I did stare at Santos and his mother, she was already walking over to help to open the side of his or our van. I should have been envious. I should have been committing myself to those predictable outbursts boys my age, give or take a few years, were known for when their fathers had left them early enough to retain only fragments of the moments they shared. I should have been the son sitting silently at the table, forking a plateful of spaghetti as protest for his stepfather's presence, answering, all right, okay, good, when his mother asked how, him how his day was at school. I should have been watching him with contempt, molding an edible mindset reserved exclusively for stepfathers, while trying to figure out what this this hand-touching, this waist-grabbing, this ear-whispering, this hand in my mother's back pocket, all meant. And although I can now get include references as overused as Oedipus to help explain how it felt as though I were fulfilling some preordained prophecy every time I imagined myself standing over his dead or dying body, there was never any chance for me to embody an image of that son when our dinners together or merely outings at McDonald's or Golden Corral. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you listeners for joining us for Of Poetry Podcast, episode nine. Please see the show notes for links to Esteban's books. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate on Apple Podcasts and subscribe.